Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Welcome to Good People, Cool Things. Today's guest is Martin Rooney, who has done so many cool things in his life. He is the founder of the Training for Warriors system. He has worked with athletes all across the world. He's spoken all across the world in 35 different countries. He's written more than a dozen books, his latest, Coach to Coach, and his brand new one, High 10, an inspiring story about building great team culture, are fantastic and really great for anyone, whether you're in sports, whether you run a business, any kind of leadership position, all about building culture. We're talking about the culture killers. We're talking about some of the cornerstones for having that great culture. We're also talking about Martin's worst speaking gig how he might fare in the 400-meter hurdles. If you caught the Olympics, last month had just crazy record-breaking all going on throughout it. We're also talking about our favorite sports moments because Martin has, again, had so many good ones. And if you're not motivated by the end of this episode, I don't know what to tell you because we're getting lots of good insights here. And I feel like going off and accomplishing a lot of stuff as soon as this recording ends, which... We can pretty much do right about now. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can reach out, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com or reach out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GPCT Podcast. You can also always head on over to goodpeoplecoolthings.com and support the show via the store. There's lots of new merch on there, lots of goodies. And you know what? Maybe we'll have to have one after this episode because I feel like there's so many good takeaways from this. But I'll let you hear all of those for yourself in this conversation with Martin. Well, hey, my name is Martin Rooney, and I am on a mission uh, to make a world of better coaches. Now, where did that start? My mom was a physical education teacher and my first coach. I had a coach when I was in seventh grade find me then when I was at the darkest times in my life, and, and he told me I would look perfect for something, and that something was track. Seven years later, I'm in college at a, on a college scholarship for track and field, and it changed my life. But then in a weird twist of fate, I made the U.S. bobsled team and then got an opportunity years later to coach top professional teams in the NFL, uh, the uh, military, UFC champs. But what I saw along the way was the world was in great need for coaches. And I made it my mission to, to, to kind of dissect what does it mean to be a great coach? How do we help more people? And I've been presenting on that around the world. Now my organization, Training for Warriors, is a, a global fitness organization changing the lives of people every day. And uh, now I guess you could call, you know, the vehicle I'm using or the elevator now is actually books. Uh, I've written 12, but the last two, one called Coach to Coach and the other high 10 have just been released in the last year. And uh, coaches, business owners, parents around the world are going nuts for it. And uh, It's helping me uh, with that mission. Fantastic. And we're going to get into all of that. But I've got to ask, since we just had the Olympics on, I always love watching the track and field events. What was your favorite event? Oh, wow. You know, well, here's what I would say. Um, I'm also a track and field coach. I I, I didn't mention that. So I coach at uh, the high school here. And I've done that for the last four years. And then it was the middle school for the last uh, three before that. So I'm a huge, huge fan of track and field. But what I would say is, uh, and here's a weird one, the 400 meter hurdles, guys race and girls race. 
I don't know if people are aware, if you're not a track and field fan, but the world record fell in both of those races. So that means that's the fastest time that has ever been run in the history of humanity. And the two records that they broke, the second place finisher in each one of those races also shattered the world record by what is considered an astronomical time. So when you sh- shave off of a world record, maybe, Joey, it's like a point oh one. Mm-hmm. Well, these guys broke those and girls broke them by over half a second. And why I think it was so amazing to me is can you imagine waking up the next day and you've broken the world record by half a second and you didn't and you weren't even the winner? And uh, so those races had uh, amazing stuff about it. And I got to go to the U.S. Olympic trials in Oregon. So I was there and uh, I watched Sydney McLaughlin uh, break the world record there as well. And then for her to decimate it again, it's almost the two, the two, the Karsten guy from Norway and her record. I mean, those might be two of the greatest performances in, in the history of track and field, regardless of event. So that would be my answer. How would you do on the the 400 meter hurdles? <laughs> I would not do so great, but uh, you know we talked offline. I'm wearing a Notre Dame hat today because my daughter uh, is going to Notre Dame for track and field. Yes. We leave. We leave in a day, and uh, <laughs> so I'm you know it's, she's going to be a freshman, and uh, she actually does also run the 400 meter hurdles. So I can't tell you how I would do, <laughs> but I would tell you I would tell you I can coach it, and uh, so she's going to a pretty big university for that. So, uh, but. She's also a heptathlete, which is why I love all the events, because she gets to do a little bit of everything. And uh, yes, that was a little dad pride. But me right now, I would not do so. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm more in that boat. Uh, If I were (laughs) if I were competent at track and field, I think I'd also be a heptathlete because it's fun. You get to dabble in everything. Oh, yeah. Well, and not only that, but, you know, but they call you the the greatest athlete in the world if you do good in it. (laughs) Well, maybe maybe we'll be seeing that in the coming years then. Your daughter will be greatest heptathlete uh, in the world you know, hey finger, fingers crossed but what she has already achieved you and I were talking about that especially in the face of the pandemic and all the things that had happened uh man I I couldn't be just more happy for what you know she's about to experience and we're just really excited for her but as a dad and her being my training partner I'm also I think it's going to be bittersweet when we get in that car and leave and she's not going back with us yeah, for sure. You'll have to get some uh, some FaceTime training in, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of doing things and accomplishing things during the pandemic, you wrote two books. It hasn't yeah. it's, it hasn't even been a full year and a half, and you've already got two books on your belt that are both doing fantastic. Tell us about them. How did you write them so quickly? <laughs> well, it's it's funny because I think people do that say, say that like, hey, so here's what I would how I would answer that is Joey that the two books came out. That didn't mean I wrote them really. (laughs) So uh, the first book, Coach to Coach, came out two days after we went into the pandemic. Now, for anybody that's produced books, and these are with a very big publishing house called Wiley, you know, the same authors that uh, John Gordon or Patrick Lencioni. Uh, So the book was, I had done that. It took me a year to write the book. And then you go through all the process and then that's when it came out. So that one, there was a very long process before that. And remember, it took me 20 years to learn all the stuff that's in there before I wrote it. 
And then uh, when that one came out, because even though it was the pandemic, it exploded and people were so into it, they needed it, right? Like Mm -hmm. we needed leadership then. We were hungry for coaches and inspiration, which is what the book is. It's a a parable style. So it's a fictional story. It's not a textbook. It's not an if this, then that. Picture, I like to usually say, if you're familiar with uh, Mitch Album, and then maybe also a guy, a a business guy like Ken Blanchard, if if, uh, Mitch Album and Ken Blanchard book had a book baby it would be coach to coach (laughs) and uh and you know and people love that style there's stories within the story and they loved it now it did so well the publisher challenged me and now that we were in the pandemic they said hey and here's the great line ready they said hey you got anything else i was like do i got anything else i got tons and i said now that we've taught somebody what it means to be a coach and how to coach man what has really got revealed now is the businesses that are really doing well or the families that are being strong during this, they have the best cultures, right? Like they've, they've got a great culture. And so what I really defined out was what that meant to me. And again, told the story. So I showed you this one, coach to coach. Well, high 10 is again, the same format story, fictional story, but it's 30 years later. And it's all the stuff that that guy had learned about how to build uh, a really great team, but also a great business. And, uh, that one just came out a few weeks ago and people are going nuts about it. It's already almost outselling coach to coach already uh, just because people are hungry for the next book. But yeah, that one took me about a year to write and, uh, and also edit and design and everything else. And then now it's just come out. So really, even though both books have come out in a say year, year and a half span, there's a three-year span of writing them, but a 20-year span of accumulating the knowledge to be able to write it. So, uh, yeah, so it's almost, uh, nobody saw the pain. They just, they just get to see the baby. Right? Like that's, <laughs> that's always good though. If you can hide the pain and just yeah. show, just show the good results of it. Now, do you get to relax a little bit now that the second one's out or are the publisher's no, going to no, be no. back for a third one? Well, hey, also for anybody listening, it's not even about the third one yet, which I do have a plan for that because this was always a trilogy in my mind. Very nice. But uh, here's a little takeaway for anybody that ever wants to either uh, write a book or have a book come out is it takes, like you just said, it's hard work. It's pain to write one, right? It takes discipline. That's all. I mean, every day, you know, getting to the keyboard and putting it together and just doing enough work until you will have something. The key is not writing a book. There are hundreds of thousands of books that are produced every year. The key is, can you get enough people to hear about it? So just like I'm doing right now, we're talking about it, what I will do on my blogs, uh, what I will do uh, on uh, my own podcast, what I will do uh, speaking or talking to anyone or presenting somewhere out there in the world. The real work begins after it comes out, because that's when you got to get the marketing going or get somebody to hear about it. So, Mm. So it's kind of funny how you said, hey, are you are you now laying back or relaxing? No, now is when you put your foot on the gas and, you're, and the real work begins. And because, uh, man, I really believe in both books, but no one will get to understand that unless I'm screaming it from the rooftops because there's a lot of white noise in these days and, uh, and there's a lot of stuff to choose from. And, and you got you to gotta either say something or do something in a certain way that somebody's going to trust in you uh, to, to read your stuff. And so, yeah. I picture for the next year, I'm going to be ceaseless again in my pursuit uh, to get people to hear about it. And then uh, from there, that's when I'll hopefully maybe start thinking about doing the next one. 
That's what I like to hear. Yeah, not resting on the laurels. And I, a good reminder, too, I think, to any, really any kind of creative project, and certainly a book, is so much goes into the marketing elements of it. And I always like to chat about the covers as well, because as you know, there's lots of books out there. Whether you're looking through a bookstore, you're going online, maybe you're just paging through small little thumbnails on your phone. And I think your cover, very simple, but eye-catching. Yeah, this one pops. I, it was, you know, hey, it was my idea too. Uh, and not only that, but see from the color schemes where you see how they're almost inverse of one another. So they play off each other, same size. I'm holding it wrong. But, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, and that idea too is that I wanted to, what encapsulates this great culture? And it's not just giving a high five, man, it's a high 10. Boom, it's those hands slapping. And then that's when the emoji idea came to me. Now, remember, that's a very small component within the story of the book, but it was just something that is not only both provocative, but it's something that resonates with people. And yeah, it's, uh, took me a long, it took a long time. Yeah, guys, for anybody listening, if you're doing a book, it may take you longer to come up with a cover you love than it does to, to write the book itself. And it's such a intimate process, but at the same time too, somebody might send you 20 designs and you actually love them all, but you got to eventually, you know, from the colors to the fonts, to the dot designs, to the look, it is really important because if it wasn't, every uh, book would be covered in like a brown paper bag and that's all we'd have. And, and if you notice out there, nobody does that. <laughs> Maybe that's a good marketing plan though for uh for a new book series just the brown paperback with no yeah. no discernible yeah, it'll, it'll be the only one that stands out <laughs> yeah and I, I think too like that's such an interesting point of like you might like all 20 covers and it's almost easier if you hate all the other ones and then there's one that stands out so so making those decisions i think very very vital uh, oh, and, well and you can what i always do is then i show it to a ton of people and you know what's crazy Everybody has different tastes yeah. too. Like you might show those 20 covers to 20 people and each one of them likes a different one and it, and it only, it only makes it worse. So, so yeah, throughout the, you know, cause I've done a, a lot of other books, uh, some of the other books that were much more fitness based and exercise based those. And I love those covers too, but those took and so much work to come up with. And, and if anybody wants to check them out or see what those covers are, you just type in Martin Rooney and books into Amazon and you'll see them all. But, uh, but yeah, like you cannot understate the process and then, Hey, the editing too. So my books took as long to edit as they did to write. And, uh, and it's a painful painful process that nobody sees when you finally have that finished product in your hand there's a whole lot more work than just somebody sitting at a keyboard and typing it out do you have a, a quirk in your writing i i as 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 a writer myself i certainly like editors 100 percent are invaluable and i i'm very appreciative of everything they do and they'll point out things that i had never realized before. So do you have anything like that in your writing? For sure. For sure. <laughs> I, well, I, well, I'll tell you a quirk and then my style. So one quirk that I noticed that I was not, uh, that I am using the word, it's the word that, that when you edit something, I start now I'm good enough to do a lot of it myself, but the word that I must have it hundreds of times. And, uh, and especially when you're trying to produce a book, 
a lot of times you've got to condense it. You, you know, you might have to remove a thousand words or 5,000 words. And I found just taking out the word that I, I saved a thousand words and it didn't change any of the structure. So that was something, I don't know where I learned it, but, uh, or, or why I put it in there, but that was something that I started to realize, holy cow, I, I just do it over and over again, that it isn't, it's not a necessary word. But then I would also say, hey, with my style, though, these books, they are now a reflection of me. I'm a, I'm a storyteller. For instance, you know, we got on and I'm telling you about my daughter. I'm telling you about, I'm telling stories. I just told those, uh, the hurdle stories and I try to get people to kind of live it. And I'm telling the stories right in the books. And so what I came up with was I wanted to write stories where the characters tell stories. So there's stories within the stories and uh, that's what the books are. And people love them because I believe people's brains resonate with stories. And, and so ultimately that's my style of the books, but definitely uh, quirk wise or not even quirk, just uh, maybe grammatically inefficient would be the way to say it, that I sometimes I'm using too many words and uh, maybe even I tried to be too descriptive. And what I found too is once you remove the that's, you can also remove a lot of uh, adjectives, you know, like, see, so like the word really, you don't have to say in the book, like, Hey, he thought it was really fun. Take the really out. And he thought it was fun. And I really got into the, to the writing process and it was kind of an identity crisis, right? Like I'm a speaker, I'm a uh, presenter, I'm a coach, uh, I'm a business owner. I never really introduced myself as a writer or an author. And it was funny that I said, wow, this is my 12th book. Maybe I should start thinking like, <laughs> that. you know, like maybe, maybe it's okay to say, Hey, I know how to do it a little bit. And I really dove in writing a, uh, or reading a lot about writing and uh, which may seem boring to some, but if that's your craft, right? Like if you're probably a uh, computer programmer, you got to read a lot about that. And uh, I don't know, it helped me out a lot to really see how other people do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as far, I, I think the segues nicely into another question I had. I'm jumping a little bit around from my my notes here, but you talked how you're also a speaker. Very unsurprising after chatting with you, even for just a few minutes. I can already, I feel more energetic. I'm like ready to take on the world. And I always like hearing this, whether it's a musician, I like hearing about their worst show. For speakers, have you ever had a terrible speaking gig? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, let's put it this way. For everybody listening, hey, I, I, until the pandemic, it got to the point, Joey, that I was presenting pretty much every weekend uh, somewhere in the world. So I've presented in 35 different countries. I used to be in front of more than 10,000 people a year minimum. Uh, I have I presented for Richard Branson's company in Wembley Stadium. I've had you know I've had some big gigs, the Army Rangers, Navy SEALs, a lot of professional sports teams. But it all started. Uh, that I can really say my professional career, I started, I didn't get paid. And it was every Monday and Wednesday night, I gave a free speech uh, in our business. It was called the Precy Speed School in New Jersey, right outside New York City, where I would give this free speech. We advertised it in the newspaper. Who wants to come here about the future of sports performance or how to train your kids? And uh, it started off and I might have two people show, you know, and for this hour and a half talk. And then it would be for people. And I would learn things and how not to make mistakes. And, and I would video myself and I would see not only was it a bad gig, I was lousy. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and then I, just like with the quirks of removing the vats, I was a lot of ums, uh, ah, you know, 
you knows, that kind of stuff. And slowly you chip those away. Slowly you really refined your material, just like an artist, just like a speaker. And then those rooms started to have 20 people, 40 people, 60 people. And then some of those rooms would have somebody in there that would say, hey, I need you to come talk to my business or, hey, I want you to come speak to this organization. And that has led me speech after speech, year after year. And then it took me to the biggest stages. But maybe the the biggest lesson within there is uh, whether you're a writer or your speaker or musician, everybody's got that story, right? You got to pay your dues. I remember, hey, here's a cool one you might like. I hung out with Billy Idol. I hung out with Billy Idol and his book had just come out and I'm grilling him. And he played the worst shows. I mean, he would show stuff he was playing. You're playing these little one-room gigs. I mean, the Beatles did it, right? Like the Hamburg years. Like they were, they were playing these horrible shows, but that's where they got great. And uh, it's the people that they do pay their dues, but they always keep the love for what they're doing. You're going to refine it and do it. But without a doubt, yeah, it didn't start with, oh, I just had lots of skill and now I'm on big stages. No, it took a, took a really, really long time. Because that story I'm telling you, those, those speeches – those were in 1999 when that started. So we're at 22 years, right? And I'll tell you this, for anybody listening, if you do something pretty consistent for 22 years, you're going to probably be pretty good at it, right? Most people just aren't that consistent, you know, period. Yeah, every week, weekend is uh, very consistent. Yeah, well, and it was very stressful. You know, I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when, it, when this got removed, it, uh, and hey, you know, we're talking 150 days on the road a year. We're talking... Uh, be careful what you wish for. You know, it was millions of miles on planes and uh, and a lot of time away from my family too. And the pandemic, it gave me an opportunity to focus on the writing more than the speaking. And now I definitely know that even if the world opens up again, I will not go back to the same kind of hectic life that I had. But I don't regret it at all either because I got to see the world and meet so many interesting people. But speaking, say, musically, here's a cool, fun fact. Uh, I went to the same high school as John Bon Jovi. So oh, wow. he's, a, he's, a, he's a little older than me. But, dude, he's been on tour ever since. Like, it was, <laughs> it, was 30, it was 30 straight years. And I cannot imagine it. But it's just got to show they love what they do. And they were doing what they loved. And, and, uh, but you do something long enough and hard enough, great things will happen. Yeah, that's... I, I went to a show last night, actually. It was the first one I've attended post-pandemic. And yeah, you could just tell, like, every every artist that came up on there would make some comment, like, you know, this is, like, one of our early shows back, too. And you could just see, like, the energy emanating from them with how oh, yeah, excited well, it was. Yeah, they're reminded how much they loved it, right? Like, it's easy to probably be, to say, oh, this is a grind. Oh, uh, th- th- this stinks. But then take it away from them. And it might just be the reminder again, man, I love music or I love performing or I love being up on stage and rocking, you know, and, and uh, yeah, so I think some great stuff is ahead for humanity when the world goes back, because all those, all that energy and all the things that people learned about what they really love, that passion is going to shine through. Now, you said you've traveled and spoken at 35 countries, so I assume you're probably a master packer at this point. Very good <laughs> at packing. What's something that you have to bring with you on a trip? Wow. Well, here's, uh, it's kind of interesting. Obviously, hey, the, the first stuff, toiletries, don't forget them, you know, because I had forgotten them before. And that's how you learn. That one is no fun. 
But, uh, but an interesting one would be, it's almost like my backpack. Cause, cause what I'm saying is, Hey, socks, underwear, your clothes, all your, your toiletries, that's kind of like my bag. But the bag I always worried about was kind of the backpack. Do I have a headset? Do I have, uh, uh, adapters? So a very big thing is when you go to other countries, they don't have the same plugs that we have and they don't use the same type of electricity. So you've got to have adapters that can work in uh, many different places in the world. And I'll tell you what, you learn that the hard way when you don't have one, because when you go to that country, they don't have any of those because they're all in that country, right? So, so for instance, hey, you're not gonna go to the 7-Eleven by your house and get an adapter for an American plug because we don't need those here. And, uh, and so I would say that, and then definitely I gotta have books. I'm an avid, avid reader. And that's something maybe important to say too. If you wanna be a great writer, you better be a great reader first. I have read uh, thousands of books in my library. I'm a maniac when it comes to it. I, I crushed three this week. I just put them on my shelf in the way that I do that uh, this morning before this podcast. And uh, I don't know, I, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong learner. And I cannot imagine, say, being on a 10 or 15 hour flight and I don't have anything to read. I would lose my mind. So usually my book, my bag is packed with way more books than I need. But, uh, but you'd be surprised how much you could read say in a, in a 20 or 30 hour round trip, uh, trip, depending where you're going in the world. Yeah. I'm, I am always surprised by what I can read as well. I, I'm, I'm like, oh yeah, I can maybe get like a couple chapters in and then it's a full, you know, 480 pages later and you've landed. I'm like, oh, perfect. This is great. Yeah. Well, and, and it's funny. Hey, the books I mentioned today, high 10 and coach to coach, you can finish them in, in a round trip, travel thing. Cause some of uh, so many people have told me that they're, that they love reading on planes. It's like, wow, I started it. Uh, man, I was halfway done when we landed and I was, and I didn't, I didn't even want to land yet. And then on the way back, I crushed it. And, and, uh, it was also by design. So yeah, I want everybody to know these are not arduous reads. These are entertaining, but you're also learning, but you're going to get this sense of accomplishment as you smash through it because they're easy to understand and fun versus, you know, I could never write some textbook that would be, uh, you know, just a slog to get through. Yeah, I think that's a, a less entertaining read anyway. So I'm glad glad you didn't go that route. But you, you touched on this a little bit about the importance of culture. And one of the questions that I always like to ask is a question you wish you were asked more frequently. And you said, what are the secrets to building a great team culture? So Martin, what are the secrets? Well, hey, here, if I could break it down, and uh, just like I mentioned, hey, before you ever write a book, especially in particular on a topic, then you better have done your research on that topic, right? So if you want to consider yourself a world expert, I can't say that there's a number of books, but but I guess what I would say is, here to be safe, if you've read like 25 to 50 books on a topic, you're probably going to be pretty knowledgeable. <laughs> now, here's the thing, though. One or two books? Maybe not. You're scratching the surface, but there's still probably so much more to explore. And uh, whether it was in coaching, which I have hundreds of books on my shelves, and then even culture, probably the same thing. But same to, is true for finance or biography or fitness. Any Before I was ever going to write about any of these topics, I had to really believe that I had, it had exhausted uh, so much information on it reading, but then also going and meeting uh, many experts in the field that are doing it. And uh, Here's why I said that. After all my notes and everything that I had gone through on everything that I had read, 
Then what I do is I look for the common denominators. I say, okay, now of all of them and the different ways that they're saying it, what do they agree on? You know, what are the things that everybody talks about? And that's when I had my big breakthrough, right? So here are the secrets, ready? First secret, can't have culture if it's just you. So what does that mean? There's got to be at least one other person. So if you got a friendship, there's a culture between you. If you got 10 people in your business, there's a culture there. If you got 30 on your team, there's a culture there. If you've got, if you've got 20,000 at a university, there's a culture there. So it is, there's an interaction or a connection between those people. That is what culture is. And people can feel it, whether they call it a chemistry. So that's the first component. Now, what is that feeling? What is that component? How is it interact or what are those exchanges? Those are done through behaviors, right? It's how the people act to each other or with other people that aren't within that culture. So it's behaviors, right? That was the next thing. And then the third one was, well, what influences behaviors? And it's what, it's how those people think. It's their thoughts. It's what they believe. And uh, so as I was playing with those words, right? People, people, uh, actions, uh, what they think. I came up with what's in the book and I call it the three B's, right? And uh, it's the nutshell of culture because I love to define something down to so, so simple and then expand out and that's the book. And uh, the three B's are, instead of people, I called it your beings, right? It's your beings, who are they? Your human beings. Instead of your actions, it was your behaviors, right? Instead of your thoughts, it was your beliefs, And so the three B's are, again, beings, behaviors, beliefs. And here's how it works. Culture is nothing more than the behaviors that are carried out by your beings because of what they believe, right? Like that is what it is. So in your own home, that's what it is. In your, on your own team, that's what it is. In your business, that's what it is. And, uh, and then what I do throughout the story is expand all that, but teaching in lessons and make it super, super engaging. But ultimately that's the secret. So if you want to change your culture, right? Like, so if you say, man, my family's not going great or my business isn't growing great, you got to assess and then either change or reprogram one of those three B's. And if you do it and all three of them are aligned and working how you want it, man, things are going to be awesome. And, uh, that man, guys, that may have seemed very elementary and simple. And here's the thing: a master of something doesn't make that something something more complex to scare you. They make it very easy so you can understand it. But why I'm saying that is that little uh, rant I just had took me about 20 years to figure <laughs> out, and I was able to do it in a couple of minutes. And uh, that's what I believe uh, we should all be striving for in master. Well, thank you for spending the 20 years on it so we can yeah, we can yeah. learn it in just a couple minutes. Yeah. Well, hey, that's the that's what the books are, right? Like the books, guys, the books, you get them on Amazon for 20 bucks, but they save you 20 years. And what I call that is an inexpensive lesson. You can either learn the hard way like I did, make a lot of humongous mistakes and blow it, or you can read these books and immediately jump ahead. And that's what books are, that's what courses are and conversations. And, uh, and the best in the world take advantage of those where uh, the people that usually spend most of their time complaining don't. And uh, so that would be my challenge for everybody that if you want to be a better leader or you want to create a better culture, man, then get the two books. And I promise, I'll make this guarantee. I promise you're going to love them or you can write me and I'll send you your money back because I have not there. Go on Amazon. 
There are over 500 five-star reviews right now. Nobody doesn't love it. So uh, I've got enough proof now with those out for a year and a half that I'm so confident that it's helping people that I want you to get it. Excellent work all around. Love the money back guarantee. And yeah, I was I was reading some of the rules before we hopped on and it just like those you can, I think you can tell when there's maybe like, you know, a fake reviewer like you can tell it's like a friend of the the oh, author yeah, or anything like that. Yeah. I, I go on there too and I don't know where they're coming from and and I'll tell you, hey, here's something that's important for anybody out there that's going to put their art out there, whether it is in music or book or business or whatever. Um it's scary. Right. You put it out there and the minute it's out, you know, you said, hey, is the work done? It's like, no, now now's when it gets scary. Like, what does everybody think? Right. Like you, you put this out there. Do they like it? Do they hate it? And uh, man, that's a scary time. And you have to have a thick skin because what I will say is not everybody is going to love what you do. Right. But and 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 I actually, yeah, I don't know if you want to try to make something that everybody loves it. You'll probably drive yourself crazy. But if you've done something really good that enough people appreciate you know, you did a good job. And it's almost amazing how many reviews, you know, like right now, high 10 is new. So those are starting to trickle in now, but the, you know, the coach to coach book, it's over 450 reviews by itself. And that's more than all my other books combined. So it just shows people are going crazy for it. And they're, and if you look, they're from all over the world, it'll show you the country they're coming from too. So it's really, really humbling. And, uh, but it makes you feel good when you really put your heart and soul into something and people like it. So, but I wrote it from a standpoint that I wanted to help people. And I think when people read it, they know that. And like, and if somebody's trying to help you, how can you think it's, you don't like it. Right. Like, so it's uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a real lesson with that too. Cause I wrote it from that heart, you know, or mindset and it's reflecting back on that now with what people think. I think you touched on this a little bit with you were talking about how people could complain their way out of something and, and out of doing something. And one of the the elements that you talk about is eliminating the five culture killers. So you don't have to give all five away because we want people to read the book. But can you touch on one or two of them and what people should look out for? Yeah. Well, hey, I'll touch on. Uh, yeah. Like here, here will be an easy one to touch on. And it's a big breakthrough. And it's a big thing that people are quoting me from the book that I didn't know. I, it was a big breakthrough for me, but it's seeming to be very powerful for all the readers. And here it is. You ready? Ego, above all, is the killer of culture. And what do I mean by that? When it's when you make it about you, when it may, when you make it, everything is about you and it's your ego is driving everything then you can't be part of a team and you are not a contributor and you're not excited when someone else does something and you're always comparing yourself to everybody else, which is also a killer too. So in our day and age of social media and, you know, kind of look at me, look at me, look at me, you know, that's the opposite of being on a team. Right. And, uh, so as the book walks through, through the stories, this is one of the major breakthroughs that happens for people. And, and I'll tell you, ask yourself, right? Like I'll say this, I was not always the best teammate when I was growing up. I wasn't, I was usually probably making the cultures worse, but I had to learn by those mistakes, especially as I became a leader, but a leader, Hey, and everybody can take this where they want, but the pandemic also showed us that the world was starving for leadership. And you know what? When the leadership became all about ego, you watch the leadership self-destruct. 
and uh, and <laughs> everybody can take that where you want. But man, leadership is not about look at me and I, I, I. Leadership is about how can I help you and we, we, we. And uh, so that would be my answer to that one. And hopefully everybody has some breakthroughs, but also, hey guys, watch it when uh, you are in a leadership position that if your ego is holding you back, it's time to put that in check. I love getting rid of the IIIs and focusing on wee wee wees. It's very French. <laughs> As I said that out loud, I was <laughs> love it. Now, I also want to talk about your training for warriors system, which has grown exponentially uh, over over the years. So can you kind of take us back to the, the beginning of that and what's what's next yeah. for 20, the rest of 2021 and beyond? Uh, well, it's a, I think it's a very interesting story where uh, I was an orthopedic physical therapist first for a while. I sometimes forget that about myself, but I, I wasn't uh, – I wasn't fulfilled as much as I could be. I loved where I worked. The culture was great and it kept me there. That's how powerful culture is. But I knew I was destined for something bigger. I had an energy. I had a way that I connected with people. I wanted to be around sport again, but everybody told me that's what you don't want to do. There's no future in that. You can't do it, but I didn't listen. Right. And I started going, I guess you could say against the grain. And I started just attending courses. This is in the mid 1990s. I'm, I'm attending courses. I'm, I'm trying to find any, book or anything I can get my hands on to learn how to be a better coach, learn more about fitness. And uh, on an airplane, two-way uh, uh, course in Tyler, Texas, which you might be oh, yeah. with, uh, <laughs> I meet this guy and his name is Bill Parisi. And he was starting a, this fledgling company called Parisi Speed School. And by the end of that trip, I knew I had to go to work with him. And uh, over the next decade and a half, we built it from a essentially in a, a van driving around, seeing if anybody wanted to be faster to a hundred location franchise affecting millions of kids around the world. And during that, I started working with not only high level football and all these other pro sports, but also fighters. And no one else had ever done that before. I was one of the original students of a guy named Henzo Gracie of the famous Gracie family. And they took a liking to me and they said, hey, we want you to do this with us and we want you to help us. And that was kind of the birth of training for warriors. So I started training these world-class mixed martial artists. No one had ever done it. I didn't know what I was doing at first, but I was honing what now I understand was the, the, the genesis of the system. People started becoming very aware of what I was doing. And uh, they asked me to come teach courses. And, they, and, and then I started writing articles. And those articles turned into a self-published book that went so big. I got a call from a big publishing house in New York City called Harper, Harper Collins, And they said, hey, do you want to do this for real? We want to do a real one of these. And I put out the first book called Training for Warriors. It's gone on to sell over uh, you know, 150,000 copies in six languages around the world. And... Uh, but here was what was interesting, Joey. It wasn't fighters buying the book. It was regular people. See, everybody didn't want to be a fighter, but they wanted to train like one. They wanted to get the results, the, the lean bodies. And, and what I had stumbled upon was you didn't have to be a fighter to do this stuff. It was, it was for anybody. And they would lose fat, build muscle. And uh, that led to courses. And the courses led to people said, I want to run this program. I want to help more people with it. Now, you talked about the growth. At our Zenith, we were at 300 locations in over 30 countries around the world. But for everybody that's aware, and this is showing vulnerability, uh, when the pandemic hit, 
most gyms were closed around the world. And many of those in many countries or states in the US were closed for three months and then six months and then nine months and then over a year. And for everybody listening, it's very hard to keep your business afloat when you're not allowed to be open and you still owe money to landlords. And unfortunately, that's that has challenged our, you know, the business greatly. We've had so many that have not just survived, but thrived. But a lot of what I worked so hard for uh, was really uh, challenged and undone over the last couple, you know, almost two years now. And uh, but still, we are still thriving and strong. There are thousands of people per day doing training for warriors around the world uh, in in places and also, uh, you know, uh, online or with my books and, and with my blogs on trainingforwarriors.com. But what I would say is I am still uncertain of the future because now with this Delta variant, uh, you know, I, we've got facilities in Australia. They just locked down. They just locked down. They're now they're going into their first lockdown. Uh, you know, some of our places in Europe and Belgium and Denmark, they still haven't opened back up yet. So I don't know, and I'm very unsure what the future holds for how uh, we're going to continue to navigate this. But I know one thing that it's not going away. And uh, and you know, I don't know if we'll ever say meaning training for words is not going away. But I would also say that I don't know if COVID will be something that goes away or not. We're going to have to learn how to live with it and maybe what the new normal is. And that's stuff that we are still navigating. But the ultimate lesson of it all and why I feel most uh, uh, proficient in writing a book about culture is it has been the culture of my organization that has kept us going. And, uh, and it was those relationships with all the warriors that used the program that when so many other businesses went away, we didn't. And it all stems back to having a great culture. And uh, man, maybe that's the greatest lesson I've had through the entire pandemic. Yeah, I think it's it's been highlighted so much more than ever before. Culture has always been important, but this last year and a half has really, really just like put it to the forefront. And Martin, you're almost off the hook here. But <laughs> we always like to end with a top three. And... You and I, we were chatting before. We're both big sports fans. Yep. So we're going to alienate the people that don't like sports, but I think <laughs> most of my listeners enjoy sports. Let's hear your top three sports moments. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say sports teams. I was all ready to go. Well, here, no. I'll give you... And this is pretty interesting because... Uh, Many times people will say, it would be easy for me to default, hey, when I was a speed guy with the New York Giants and they won the Super Bowl, I was working with a guy named Frankie Edgar. He won the UFC title. But uh, here's here's a sports moment. Actually, I could say number one and number two and number three. I was working with a, uh, they all involve high school, right? Which I think is this most amazing time for everybody. And many times the last time people do do sports in their lives. And I worked with this high school football team called Wayne Hills in New Jersey uh, for a decade. We uh, had the second longest winning streak in state history. There was a point when we won 55 in a row. And, uh, and it's funny that I say we, because that's how much I felt part of it. Right. I was only a coach within the organization, the, the head coaches and everything else. It's a shout out to everybody. Not just like I did it. But uh, there were two moments, right? It was two state championships, which you play on the floor at Giant Stadium. And these are high school kids. And uh, the first one, they call it the second miracle at the Meadowlands. And uh, we were losing with barely any time on the clock. And the other team had just scored and they were kicking back off to us. And I thought, man, it's over. 
and they kick it off, but they at least kick it to our best player. And he's running. I'm like, okay, something could happen. But four guys jump on his back. But this kid using all his strength and nothing left, he pitches the ball to this kid who was really young on our team, but the kid runs all the way around the back end and runs like 80 yards for a touchdown. And we win with like no time on the clock that I don't, I don't, I think I will never forget it. It's a, I couldn't sleep for a week after that, but then with the same team the next year uh, and I have a YouTube video of this, it's called the power of a coach where I give the pregame speech. Uh, There was this weird altercation weeks before and the governor of New Jersey stepped in and removed half our starting lineup, which they should have never done. And I'm thinking there's no way we can win because we're missing half our team. But I still give this speech about believing. And uh, we were losing at halftime 14-12, but we end up, we go on to win, uh, you know, uh, 15-14. And it was, so though, and after that game, kids were giving me such hugs. My mouth was bleeding from them hitting me in the face with their shoulder pads over and over. <laughs> and, uh, but when I went to bed tonight, that night with a fat lip, again, couldn't sleep. And then I guess being selfish, but we talked about why I'm wearing this uh, Notre Dame hat. Uh, the third probably greatest sports moment happened during the pandemic. And uh, my daughter, who Notre Dame was always her dream, and I didn't know what was going to happen. But I always promised her if we just kept working, even when the tracks were closed and if we trained in the street or we did whatever it took, and even when the colleges said you couldn't, they didn't, you couldn't recruit anymore or we didn't know if there was going to be any more sports, we just kept going. And I just always told her to believe. And uh, one night when I thought, man, maybe nothing was going to work out, she screams and my wife runs upstairs and then my wife screams for me and I run upstairs and I get up there and they're both crying. And I didn't know what happened. I thought all the dreams are over, right? And uh, my daughter takes her phone and she puts it in my face and it says, hey, tell all the other schools are out. Welcome to the Fighting Irish in Notre Dame. And uh, all our kids came up. I have four daughters and we all had the greatest family hug maybe we've ever had. Everybody was crying. And uh, all three of those stories no one will ever see the years and years and years of work that were put into all those kids. And nobody's going to maybe really know those. Those weren't Olympic medals, which I've had athletes that have won. But you know what? Uh, those were the three maybe greatest moments for me. Yeah, that's such an awesome moment. Hopefully no fat lip for you. Yeah. On the, uh, <laughs> yeah the family it hug. Yeah. It wasn't with her. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> she, wasn't, she wasn't wearing shoulder pads <laughs> as well. <It's> okay. <laughs> Now, congrats to her and safe travels since yeah. you're uh, you're headed out tomorrow. Yeah, we're leaving for South Bend, right? <laughs> Crazy. That's going to be wild. Well, Martin, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. If people want to check out any of your books or learn more about you, where can they find you? Yeah, so hey, go to Amazon. It's the best place. They always have deals going. Right now, Coach to Coach is like five bucks off, depending on Ooh. when you listen to this. I'm not in control of that. Amazon does those things but they'll create discounts for books sometimes that are doing so well, they want more people to have it. But I would recommend, hey, you can start with either one, but you can't go wrong with both and you're going to love the story, I promise. Uh, you can find uh, more about me if, on Instagram. I'm the Martin Rooney. You can go check that out. I'm always sharing some cool stuff and you'll see a lot of the things that we talked about today. Uh, I have a website called coachinggreatness.com. Some great blogs on there. And if you want to see more about Training for Warriors, you can go to trainingforwarriors.com and check that out too. But uh, hey, hopefully, uh, if nothing else, though, you take some action on some of the stuff we said today. And uh, and hey, I'm really hoping that everybody uh, stays safe during this. But uh, 
also enjoyed uh, what we had to say today. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. I know I feel inspired. I'm like, I got, I'm like mentally going through. I'm like, all right, here's all the things I'm going to get done after this call. Martin, thank you so much. My pleasure. And of course, we got to end with a corny joke, as we always do. And topical. We're talking about track and field. What do sprinters eat before a race? <laughs> what? Nothing. They fast. <laughs> get after it today, people. I like that one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to tell some kids that one, especially my daughter yes. after this. Please use it. Please use it. <laughs> Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.